And I've got a message that honestly, as we enter into this Christmas season, usually I start to preach like a sermon series on Advent. This is not your typical Advent Christmas sermon. It's, I'm going to call it the last hour. Doesn't that sound exciting uh, this morning? That's uh, oh, it's Christmas holidays. Fa la 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 la. It's the last hour. Um, but here's the thing, Advent actually means coming because they were waiting on Jesus to come the first time and we're waiting on him to come the second time. And if you look in scripture, there's a lot of different things about what we should be looking for when Jesus is returned. There was a lot of things that they were looking for when Jesus was coming the first time when they were expecting the Messiah to show up. And whenever you think about the last hour, you think about end times, you think about the end of the world, like usually if somebody's going to come in and preach a sermon, they're going to pull out maps and, and, and spreadsheets and start talking about Russia and China and Israel and, and, and you know all this stuff. And this is not that sermon. I'm not getting into that this morning. I, I think that sometimes people can drift off in, into like some very shifty, shaky things based on what they think the scripture may be saying. And it's not always helpful. And my argument that is, instead of looking so much to what's going on in Israel or what's going on in Russia or Ukraine, even though those things are important and I think we should keep our eyes on those things, I think one of the things that Scripture points to when it comes to the last hour, more than what's going on outside of you, is what is actually taking place on the inside of you. And we can get our eyes focused on everything that's going on outside of us in the world and, and we can start bringing these spreadsheets and guessing when the rapture is going to take place and all of these different things. And, and really those things are outside of our control to a very large degree. But what is inside of our control is to check the condition of our heart and know what's going on on the inside of us. You know, when we talk about the end times, people can get really uh, superstitious. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm a little stitious. I'm not, I'm not super, but I am a little stitious. And, uh, and, and, and it's funny that, you know, oftentimes in our world today, I don't believe every conspiracy theory, but have you noticed that sometimes conspiracy theories end up becoming true? Uh, that, that, that many things that are going on in our world, people, they're like, well, I don't know, maybe you're, maybe you're looking into it a little bit too much there, Clay. And I'm thinking, yeah, but a lot of times these things are actually coming to pass. And, and we see a lot of these things being fulfilled in our life. But I want to look specifically, and this is going to be a, a sermon where I basically just take some scriptures and I give some commentary on it. Nothing flashy. But here's the thing. Jesus, John, Paul, and many others wrote some things about the end and what we should be looking to, for. What we should be paying attention to specifically and it's about what's going on in you more than what's going on on the outside of you. And see, they write very lovingly to warn you to pay attention. And here's what's, what's unique about the time that we live in specifically is that people don't like warnings. People want, literally, people to tell them what they want to hear all the time. And if you confront people concerning things that seem to be problematic, people don't like that. I don't know if you realize that or not. But warning after warning after warning, if you ever by chance happen to read the New Testament, you will not find a letter in the New Testament written or in any of the Gospels where there is not a warning to the church specifically. Y'all need to pay attention to what's going on and check the condition of your heart. And he was always, they were always addressing problematic issues that needed to be handled because they loved them. If they didn't love them, they'd just say, ah, don't worry about it. We're going to overlook this. We ain't going to pay no attention to it. You're going to be all right. Don't worry about it. Just feel good, and then death will come, and, and, and it's not, you know what I'm saying? No. 
He loved them. Paul loved them. John loved them. Jesus loved them. So they gave them warnings out of love to help them pay attention to what's happening in their lives. In 1 John 2.18, here's what John says. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Now, Antichrist is not necessarily even a topic that people love to discuss, but we're talking about the second coming of Jesus, and one of the things that Scripture teaches very clearly is that before Jesus comes the second time, there will be many false Jesuses. There will be many, many Antichrists that culminate in one climactic Antichrist before Jesus finally returns. And he speaks about the Antichrist both singular and plural. He says there have been many Antichrists. Like if you look throughout world history, there have been many Antichrists, people who have been false Jesuses or false messiahs or people that literally stood and opposed everything that Jesus is about and stood in place of him. And you can go down through history and find one right after another saying but all of that that spirit of antichrist that is at work in the world is leading to a culmination of all things where one final antichrist manifests and he is a global leader just before Jesus returns at the end now he says this is the last hour now does this mean Jesus is coming back in five minutes obviously not because John was writing this to people 2,000 years ago he wrote this letter 2,000 years ago and he said this is the last hour. But what you need to understand about John is he's not talking about just something that he sees coming forward in the, in the year 2025. He's looking at redemptive history. And he knew that there were certain things that had to happen throughout redemptive history to bring about the end. He knew that the Messiah had to come. So basically he's saying, here's why we know it's the last hour. Because God gave promise after promise after promise over the course of thousands of years of the fact that there would be a Messiah that showed up to die for our sins. And not only that, but he was proven to be true by the life that he lived, by the miracles that he performed, and by the fact that he was crucified on a cross buried in a grave, but rose up again on the third day, and we watched him with our own eyes ascend into heaven. And he promised us that he would be returning, and he said, because we have seen these things and know these things, we are at the end of redemptive history. The redemption has taken place. I live in the church age, and he says, we know that it is the last hour. Now, God's timeline is different than your timeline. If I said I'm going to be here in an hour, you would expect me to be here within 60 minutes. Amen. But here's the thing, on God's prophetic timeline, sometimes I come in here and I pray at 5 a.m. on occasion. And when I do, when I'm looking at my clock, I know i got to get back to the house at 6. So when it gets 5.50 at the clock, I start like preparing things. You know what I'm saying? I'm telling you that on God's prophetic timeline, we are at the end of the last hour. It's about 5.50, about to turn 6. You know what I'm saying? Like we are looking at things where we begin to realize that we are moving into a season where God is trying to tell us you need to be looking up for your redemption. It draws nigh. We are in the last hour mode. 1 John 2.19, he goes on to say, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, he's speaking about people who come up under the influence of Antichrist not knowing it. Now, when you think about Antichrist, you think about something that's just like pure blatant evil that's out there in the world. I'm telling you that people within the church, in this church, are under the influence of Antichrist without even knowing it very often. 
And he said, the people that come up under the influence of that which opposes Christ and his teaching, he said, we find out whether or not they're truly of us or they're being influenced by this spirit because the ones that are truly with us, they remain among us. Now, he's saying essentially that, guess what? There's some metrics on how you can judge whether or not somebody's a true Christian or whether they're not. And it's, he's saying one of the metrics, one of the ways you can measure this is if these people stay in the church the long haul. Amen. If they stay, now I'm not talking about church attendance. I'm not saying about which church you go to. But what he's saying is, here's the thing. What does it take to remain in the church? Now this is interesting because most people would say, well, all I got to do is show up on Sunday. No, if you're going to remain in the church of Jesus Christ, one, you have to believe a certain set of doctrine about who Christ actually is. You got to believe that God came in the flesh as a man whose name was Jesus Christ that he was born of a virgin Mary legitimately, that that wasn't fake, that it's not an analogy, that it's not a metaphor, that he was born of a virgin because he was a sinless man, the only sinless man to ever live on this planet. But yet he died on the cross, he was buried on the third day, and he literally, physically, and bodily rose from the dead on that third day. And there's many other things that you have to believe. You have to believe the commandments of Jesus. You can't simply say, well, you know, Jesus would be different if he lived in these days. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he said 2,000 years ago, he still says today, and it still stands for today. And so we have to believe a certain set of confessions about Jesus. And get this, to stay in the church you actually have to live a lifestyle that can be observed by others as a godly lifestyle isn't that interesting because here's what they say in scripture over and over again is that if you profess to be a Christian it is indicated by the fact that you have a transformed life it doesn't mean that you're perfect it does not mean that there are not struggles we all face struggles we all sin we all fall short we all fail from time to time but the Holy Spirit is doing a a work in us that when we sin and when we fall short we are convicted of that sin and we choose to actively be in repentance and humble submission to the authority of God and the authority of our spiritual leaders and we say you know what I need to turn from this and I need to walk with God And what Paul says in many of his letters, and John the same, and Peter the same, is that they had people in their churches that they started to do certain things. Some of them would start to confess lies about Jesus. And they said, we knew they're not from us because they're over here believing lies about Jesus. They don't believe in the true Jesus. Paul said, they're teaching to you a false Jesus. And they went out. And there were others in the church that started living godly lifestyles that fit the culture more than it did Scripture. And he says, and when we confronted them about these lifestyles, they ended up either leaving the church, were unrepentant, and so we had to remove them from the church. Isn't that interesting? And he says, so there had to be things that they believed. There had to be also a a, a lifestyle that was observable, that was godly. And there had to be a willingness to humbly submit to God and repent when you veer off track. And he said, we knew that these people were of God because they were living this out and they were enduring through it. And when they, when they sinned, they would repent and come back into fellowship with God's people. And they would stay in the light and they would walk in the light. It wasn't that they were all perfect. It wasn't that they didn't sin. It was just that they were humble enough to repent and admit when they were wrong and say, I would rather walk with Jesus instead of choosing the ways of this world. But see, we live in an age where anybody can be in it and we just put stamp a label Christian on them and they're what I'm telling you let me tell you something not everybody who says Lord Lord not everybody who shows up to church on Sunday not every person who teaches the Bible on TikTok is a follower of Jesus Christ 
And it's something that you need to know because I see so many people even that say to me, well, they believe in God. If they say they believe in God, the scripture says that they will demonstrate it by their works. It will be demonstrated by their life. And so there's a mass amount of deception going on in our world and people are labeling Christian on so many things that totally disregard the person of Christ and who he truly is. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20 through 25, it says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. That's you. You all have knowledge. You all have spiritual knowledge if you are truly Christ. There's something on the inside of you that says, That's not right. That's not God. That's not the Holy Spirit. And he says, I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, who, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now notice what he says in verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Now John also wrote, believe it or not, the Gospel of John. And he parallels this scripture with John 15 where Jesus says, I am what? I am the vine and you are the branches. And he who abides in me will bear much fruit. And he says two things specifically. He says, if you keep my words, you will abide in me. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, in today's age, one thing that people hate is obedience. They love that Jesus saved them. They love that Jesus is very loving and gentle. And they love that he probably won't say nothing to them. But let me tell you something. Jesus says, no, if you want to abide in my love, he said, you will keep my commandments. If you want to abide in me, you will keep my words. My words will be life to you. And what that means is that when you show up to something in Scripture that you disagree with or, or, or you may not like or you're just not sure given the cultural trends, can I tell you this? You and culture are wrong. And Jesus is right. And i got to tell you something, folks. Even when it comes to how I should pastor, I bump up against things in Scripture where I think to myself, that is going to make me uncomfortable, Lord. But guess what? The Scripture isn't wrong. Clay is. So I don't go based on what I feel like. I don't go based on cultural trends. I don't go based upon what kind of mood I woke up in that morning. I, don't, I can't come up with some kind of idea that says, well, but we're, we're different. No, we're not different. We're still on this same Thing that Jesus laid out so long ago and our generation just says but you know Jesus he's just he's my best friend and he just sloppy wet kisses me all the time and I listen to worship music and uh, yeah yeah Jesus does love you but you have to love Jesus in return and that means that you have to keep his words and that means that you can't just simply choose to live how you want to choose to live and walk in deception and walk in sin and continue down that path and just say, but Jesus loves me. Well, yeah, he loves you. That's why he's saying quit. That's why he's saying stop. Because you have destructive patterns in your life. I'm telling you, I know, I know this is like, oh gosh, Clay's on one this morning. Do you all not see the situation that's going on in our world and in the church at large? That's the point. Like you have to realize you got to... Peel back the layers of your eyes and see and look and say, man, look at what is taking place in our world. And people are numb to it and they're just slowly falling to sleep under the sway of the direction that the world's going. And not just the world, but it's infiltrating the church and our imaginations. 
Now, I want you to understand something. Imagine I go up to Subway, and I say, yo, give me an Italian BMT, and I want everything on it. And the lady looks back at me. She said, no, 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 no. You don't want an Italian BMT. You don't like Italian BMTs. As a matter of fact, you don't even like salami. I know you. You want a meatball sub. And I say, no, I, no, I don't want a meatball sub. Why are you trying to tell me what I like and what I want? Trust me, bro. You like meatball. And she, just, and she goes to making meatball. I'm like, I don't, I don't want a meatball. Didn't order a meatball. Ordered a BMT. What do you? This is what we do to Jesus. We try to tell Jesus what he likes. When he places an order on our life, we say, no, 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 my man. You don't want BMT. You want meatball. I know what you want. You want meatball. And we try to tell Jesus what he likes. You know, I did this in my younger years. I remember when I first started reading the Bible, I'd sit around with my buddies, and we'd be, we'd be kind of, you know, tying one on a little bit, and I'd start to wax philosophical and philosophize, and I'd say, you know what Jesus really likes, man? He likes what we're doing right now. Because we ain't hurting nobody. And, and, you, and you get into all this stuff, and I'm saying, but you know what? When I got into the Word of God, I realized that Jesus was placing a different order than I was delivering. And I can't tell Jesus what he likes. You can't be in a relationship with somebody when you don't believe anything that they say. Do you think that Andrea could be in a relationship with me if every single thing that I said, she said, I don't know if I believe that. I don't know if I believe that, Clay. It'd be a tough relationship. But when Jesus comes, he doesn't even come just as a friend. He comes as a Lord. He comes as king. And that means that when his words come to me, whether I like it or not. See, he says, this is the promise. It is eternal life. I don't know about you, but I want eternal life. This life is fleeting. We were talking about it the other night. I'm 35. Best case scenario, I'm, at the ha I'm probably at half point of my life. I got 35 years left if I'm lucky. If something crazy, if somebody don't gun me down up here one Sunday morning. You know what I'm saying? Like, I got 35 years at best. We got a short time on this life, y'all. And he's talking about eternal life as being the promise. And yet we'll trade everything for this short little, little pleasures that last no amount of time. And he's saying, but here's the deal for eternal life. You abide in Christ and you let his words abide in you. It's not a buffet where you get to pick what you want to eat. You don't get to pick the parts of Jesus you like and the parts you don't like. Jesus told many of his disciples after he had fed multitudes and multitudes with, with a few loaves and a few fish. And they came to him because they had, he had fed them with Food that satisfies physically. And Jesus said, look, you can't follow me unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And m scholars will say at this time there were about 6,000 disciples probably that were following him. And in John 6, 6, 6, which is so interesting to me, John chapter 6 and verse 66, when he said, look, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood and take all that I'm offering, he said, you ain't going to be able to be my disciples. And it says at that point, Many of his disciples turned away and stopped following him. Because there's a point in our culture where there's going to be a dividing line where people are going to say, man, this is too much. I like what culture's doing better. I like what this Jesus is saying over here better. And I think that Jesus is too harsh. I think he's too much. And many of his disciples will turn and cease to follow him because of the demand that he's placing on their life to live a godly life in an ungodly culture. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 through 2. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word. I laughed when I read that. 
Because I, I remember Forrest, first time I ever met Forrest Quillen, first time I ever met him, he come in, he was like, bro, check this out, and went into a spoken word and just busted it out. And when I heard that language, obviously it's just talking about somebody speaking to you, but I thought to myself, you know, imagine Forrest going around like just saying a spoken word that just deceived the masses. You know what I'm saying? Like, man, that spoken word was so powerful. He rhymed and everything, and I, he's got to be true. You know what I'm saying? Like, anyway, y'all didn't get it. For me, it was a real good time in the Lord. Forrest does a good spoken word, by the way. You ought to ask him to do one for you. Uh, but he said, whether by spoken word, by spirit, don't be alarmed, or by a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now, this is interesting because this is so powerful now that he says a letter seeming to be from us. You know, there are people that come to me and say all the time, well, what about, what about the Gospel of Thomas? You know, what about, what about these other books that were written and et cetera, et cetera? Can I tell you this, folks? A lot of people looked into it over the years, I promise you. A lot of people have looked into it over the years. And they're all smarter than you and I combined, I promise you. And, and what we know is not only were they smarter than you and I combined, but they were there when the stuff was written. The Gospel of Thomas is what we call a pseudo pseudepigraphical writing. It means that it was written 300 years after the apostles died and it just showed up out of nowhere and people are you, people turn on the History Channel and the History Channel is telling you that this happened and this happened. But can I tell you something? The History Channel is compromised, y'all. Don't get your theology from the History Channel. Somebody amen me this morning. Everything you see on Oprah ain't true. I promise you, y'all, we are being deceived on a mass level because we take everything we see and hear on the news or on our TV as authoritative. To receive something like the Gospel of Thomas or some of these other books, would be, it would be like this. It would be like 300 years from now, somebody writes a book about John F. Kennedy and says, you know what, we have evidence that John F. Kennedy was actually an alien. And then a thousand years down the road from when they wrote that 300 years from now, somebody says, well, we know for a fact that John F. Kennedy was an alien because somebody in the year uh, 2300 wrote that he was. A now, I, I ain't going for somebody that far away. I want, some, I want to go to Jackie and read about the woman who had the blood on her hands who was with him, who knew who he was, who knew what was going on. If I want to know about Jesus, you know who I'm going to take their eyewitness testimony of? The dudes that were with him that had his blood on their hands. So I, if there seems to be a letter written from us, don't listen to it. This is why we have what we have in the Bible. This is why we keep it and we call it the canon of Scripture. Don't be going out into other goofy stuff and saying, well, this, this seems like it might be. No, 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 no. We don't already been through this. The church, this Christian faith is not something that somebody came up with last week. It has been passed down through the ages by godly men who tested it and secured it and, and, and gave it to you. I don't get to make it up, y'all. It's been handed down to me from Jesus himself to the apostles and prophets and then into us through the holy word of God. And so we don't get to make it up. But the Thessalonians were the most persecuted church in the New Testament and they wanted Jesus to come back because their life was terrible. Y'all ever notice how when you're going through hard times you just wish Jesus would come back a little quicker? It's like when things are good, I really hope Jesus would hold off. I mean, I, I, mean, I, used, to be, I used to deal with youth, which is hard, but I used to deal with youth, and none of them wanted the Lord to come back. Well, I don't really want the Lord to come back until I get married and have some kids and get a nice car. <laughs> I haven't got the dog that I wanted yet. I think, what are you talking about? This is the generation we grew up. We have been so comforted and pampered that we don't want the Lord to come back. 
Do you know how much better it's going to be when the Lord shows up? I don't care what you can get in this world. It will pale in comparison to the first 30 seconds of heaven. The first 30 seconds when the Lord comes back, you will be so blown away that whatever you tasted in this life, you will say that was absolutely nothing. This is what I've been longing for. And the apostles and the early Christians knew that so much that when they sung the song, Lord, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus, they meant it. We sing it and we walk out of the doors and we say, but I still want some of the world, please. Man, that's good preaching. Oh, Lord help me. He's addressing their desire because, look, they went through a hard time. They were the most persecuted church in the New Testament. I've been wanting the Lord coming back soon. But they, see, they wanted the Lord to come back so bad they got fixated on it. They were like, man, when's he coming back? When's he coming back? You know what? He's coming back soon, y'all. He's coming back soon. He's coming back soon. You know what they did? They quit their jobs. He had to write a letter to them and say, boys, look, 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 look. Y'all got to get a job. You know, young people, they, I remember when I first got saved, I was so certain that the Lord would be back by the time I turned 25. I was like, man, I don't need to do nothing. I just need to sit back and wait. I need to read the Bible and wait on God. But, you know, then I read the scripture and said, no, you need to get a job. <laughs> you need to work. You need to occupy until he comes. You need to know that he could come. You need to plan as if he's not coming for 100 years. But you need to live as if he's coming back in the next five minutes. And that's how we have to live. But here's the thing, they're saying in the second letter, he's saying, no, you need to calm down, get a job. Second letter, he's saying, look, did we already miss him? And, and he's trying to correct that. And in verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. The man of lawlessness here, Paul is talking about the same man that John is, the Antichrist. But he likes using this language, and Antichrist is really a, a word that means in place of Christ in, in, in the Greek language. But this man of lawlessness, I really like it because it characterizes and helps us identify who the Antichrist it really is, what his nature is. And here's what Paul says in verse 4. He says, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, there's different interpretations about the temple of God. Uh, for example, they, a, a lot of Bible scholars and interpreters, they will always note that in the year 167 B.C., 167 years before Christ, the king of Syria, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes, and he went into the temple in Jerusalem, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar before he slaughtered a whole bunch of, of Israelis. And most people will argue that that is the abomination of desolation that the book of Daniel speaks about. Then many scholars will go on to say that when Jesus talks about the abomination of desolation, he was most likely talking about what happened in 77 AD when Rome came into Jerusalem and literally destroyed the temple. And when they destroyed the temple, Israel ceased being a nation until the year 1948. And there was no Jerusalem. There was no Jewish worship. They were scattered. But see, then other scholars will say, but see, what you see is many antichrists coming, different abominations that cause desolations, which will culminate in one end, antichrist, 
who has a final abomination of desolation. And some will say that he will actually, like, so, you know, there's not actually a temple built right now in Israel for worship. And some, are, some will argue, and I don't know if they're right or wrong, I'll just be honest with you, but many will argue that they're going to build that third temple, and the Antichrist will go into that temple, and he will once again, there'll be another abomination that causes des desolation. And it's very interesting because if you get into this pretty deep, oh, I'll cover it here in just a second, but the other, the other interpretation for it being the temple, that he comes into the temple, and this has actually been very popular throughout church history, is that they're saying that the temple is actually the church itself. Because if you read in all the New Testament letters, what does Paul call the church? He calls it the temple of God. And what, he, what, what some of those scholars believe is that what's going to happen is that the Antichrist will actually invade the church itself and exalt himself and proclaim himself to be God within that. Whatever interpretation you might have, obviously, we're talking about a spirit that is at work in the world and we're talking about a spirit that will try to be at work in the church, whether in, in actively involved in the church or persecuting the church from outside. And he goes on to say that there's going to be a rebellion or a great falling away. Now, again, some people are going to say that's in the church, but I, I think probably the best bet is that what you're going to see is a rebellion and a great falling away throughout the world. And that people will begin to oppose everything that is Christ and godly. And it will begin to be very expansive throughout the world. And to a large degree it already is. See in America, folks, we have lived in a place where actually Christianity has sort of been honored and lifted up since, since its inception. But I don't know if you realize this or not. It's becoming less and less popular to be a Christian in America. And it will probably most likely become less and less popular as we move forward. In the world, it's already unpopular. There are places you can go right now as a Christian and you will lose your head for it. You go to China, you will be persecuted. You can't have public worship. And in many of the places that are most persecuted, we actually see the church growing the fastest underground because there's nothing that creates a good, true, pure church like persecution. Comfort causes us to love the world. Comfort causes us to want to have Jesus on a buffet platter. But see, there's a rebellion, a great falling away. But see, I, I also think that we're moving in a time where morality is declining more and more in our world. And we're seeing this rebellion in humanity as a whole. That there's a rejection of the things of God and it's inundating culture. And it's making way for leaders that are opposed to Christ. The people that we elect... Even in these last elections, some of you, you know, you want to praise the Republican Party. Even in red states in the last election, everywhere that they voted, right? Everywhere that they revoted, people were still heading toward the direction of we still think it's a great idea to have abortions. And I don't know where you stand on that, but all of that stems legitimately in its essence from the fact that we want to have sex whenever we want to have sex with whoever we want to have it with no consequences. It's immoral. At its core. And when you don't see the immorality of that at its core and you come up with all these false illusions of why it would be a good idea, you are under deception. And church history proves that. Because we don't, even, we don't just have scripture to prove that. We have church history of every church leader down through the ages saying, no, this is what the Bible says. This is wrong. It's ungodly. It's a heinous crime against humanity. And it's more importantly a heinous crime against God. And so he says, let no one deceive you in any way. Now, here's, this is very interesting because people are set on deception. I don't know if you realize this or not. I was reading the other day about Adolf Hitler, and I think Adolf Hitler was an antichrist. Okay? I don't think he was the, obviously, 
But I think Adolf Hitler was an antichrist. He was under the spirit of antichrist. He hated the Jewish people. What's interesting about Adolf Hitler, though, was that he deceived the Christian church into backing him. And he had a guy, one of his right-hand men, his name was Joseph Goebbels. And he was his chief propagandist. And I read some things that this guy said. And I want to put it up to you right here, just some things that this guy said. He said, if you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, it eventually becomes the truth. A lie told once remains a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. Think of the press as a great keyboard on which the government can play. The truth is the greatest enemy of the state. Do you believe a man said stuff like that? Like he said, it's my job to deceive the people. My job is to create propaganda to convince people to believe a certain amount of things so that we can have totalitarian control over them and that they believe certain things that will lead into our agenda. Can I tell you that this same spirit, that spirit of Antichrist, is at work in our world today and the government, right? Satan uses governments which bring in false leaders which are influenced by the demonic, which uses media, which influences you to believe foolish stuff. And now they have trained even the church to spend far more time on media than they do in the Word of God. So guess what you end up being influenced by? You end up being influenced by the world instead of the Word of God. And deception creeps in. He says, let no man deceive you in any way. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5-7, through 7, it says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him? Now, so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work, he says. So there's a mystery of lawlessness that he's saying it's a mystery because he doesn't see it plainly. He doesn't understand how it's at work. But he sees that this, this spirit and this mystery is at work, stirring up people's hearts and emotions against the truth of God's word and against who God truly is. And there's this hostility toward Christ and humanity has hostility toward their creator. And so he's looking into a moment prophetically where he sees in the future that this is going to increase and lawlessness is going to abound and it's going to, be, it's going to set the stage basically for a world that has so turned against God that now a leader can take the stage and they will get behind him and say, we're with you, buddy. We're against all that stuff right there. And it says, he who now restrains. So there's something that is restraining the lawless one from being fully manifested. Like, for example, there's something that restrained, even though that spirit was at work in Adolf Hitler or different men throughout history. See, there was something that restrained them from becoming that end times antichrist. And he basically says you need to pay attention because there's, there's different interpretations to what's restraining. Some people say it's the church that's restraining the antichrist from coming. And once the church is raptured out of the way, right, then he'll be fully revealed. Some people believe that. Some people believe it's the Holy Spirit that's restraining the Antichrist from coming. And then some people believe that it's actually Michael the archangel, and they believe it based on this. In Daniel 10, it says that Michael the archangel restrains principalities over Jerusalem. And if you read the Septuagint, it says in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. I know it's a little heady. Y'all good with me? Septuagint, right? Look it up later, I guess. But it says that in the end times, basically, 
Michael will rise up and he will pass away when that Antichrist sets his foot in Judea. So some people think that it's a spiritual force that Michael the archangel is not allowing the spirit of the lawless one to fully manifest just yet because it's not time yet. But there'll be a moment when the one, whether it's the church, the Holy Spirit, or Michael the archangel, I don't really care. But he who restrains will be taken out of the way and lawlessness will be free to run full course. You need to understand that this is actually the demonstration of the wrath of God. When we talk about the wrath of God, we're talking about when people say, No, God, I don't want you. No, God, I don't need you. No, God, I prefer my words to your words. That what he does is he says, Okay, and he hands you over to it. And the reason we see the world getting in the shape that it's in and people losing their minds on some level is because God has literally handed us over to what we've asked for. And he said, Just go on with it. You can keep going down that direction and keep moving in that direction. But it won't be revealed before its proper timing. Second, Thessalonians 2.8, it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now, I don't know about you, but that's one of the most amazing verses I've ever read in my life. I've never even seen in a movie somebody kill somebody with their breath. Y'all know what I'm talking about this morning? Like I, this mo- every, every Sunday morning, I get Tim to give me some mints. And the reason being is because if i got to pray for somebody around the altar, I'm afraid that I might kill them with my breath. I've had coffee, you know, and I preach for an hour, and it gets dry, and I just don't want that to happen. But we're talking about, imagine a villain so bad that when the Lord Jesus Christ shows up, he breathes on them and he destroys the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. That's right, it's something that's praiseworthy. But you know, for the people that think Jesus is just a hippie walking around smoking pot and carrying a lamb, that's a real blow at their theology. Because when he shows up, he shows up with a fierce vengeance to say, I'm going to bring about justice against all evil, against everything that has opposed God. And he shows up with some intentionality. And I need you to understand this, that I believe that when Jesus shows up, he's not showing up to receive a a, a gross, ugly bride. You know what I'm talking about? He's going to have a beautiful bride that is without spot and without blemish. Like she's right now saying, man, I got to get on the Peloton. You know, we got to get in shape because I'm getting married. You know what I'm saying? Like, and she's pumped. She's excited. The true bride of Jesus Christ is waiting on him to come, and she is getting ready for her wedding. She's getting in shape. She's taking her vitamins, son. Like she wants to look good in that dress. Y'all know what I'm talking about. She's getting ready because he is going to return. But when he does, he's coming to bring justice on this lawless one. And he says the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan in verse 9. With all power and false signs and wonders. See, there's power, there's false signs, and there's wonders. Anticipate that Satan has always counterfeited the power of God. Even in the book of Exodus, when they showed up to bring judgments on, on, on Egypt, there were magicians that brought counterfeit miracles to confuse them and distort the truth. I remember when I was in my early 20s, Oprah having New Age guys on, and people were giving testimonies of getting healed by these people performing these New Age things. And and somebody would say, well, you know what? They believe in God. It's a good thing. I don't care if they say they believe in God. It's not the true God. There are false signs. There are false wonders. If it is not rooted and grounded in Scripture, you need to steer clear of it. And this, this works hard on charismatic people who believe in the gifts of the Spirit because we believe anybody that can perform any kind of spooky little thing is probably God. And I'm telling you, don't believe every single thing that happens. Just because somebody can perform miracles and signs and wonders does not mean that they are speaking on behalf of God. 
Paul says, even if an angel shows up to you preaching another gospel, he basically says, count him a curse. Slap his brains out in the spirit if you would. He's saying, if somebody comes up to you preaching another Jesus and another gospel, he said, let him be accursed. There's no stronger language than anathema in the New Testament. And here's what's so interesting is, is you've got people like Joseph Smith who created the Mormon religion. I know I'm getting hard in the paint this morning. There are like 12 of you that are new visitors. You're like, well, it's a little too hard for us. We're not coming back next week. But I need you to understand that this is the times that we're living in and it is highly likely that many of you would be deceived were it possible. That's what Jesus ends up saying. Were it possible, even the elect would be deceived because of the false Christs that are coming and because of the false prophets that are coming, because of the false Jesuses, the false messages that are coming. You know, I don't doubt that, a, that an angel named Gabroni came to Joseph Smith. I don't doubt it a bit. I just doubt that Joseph Smith actually read this scripture that Paul wrote whenever the angel came to him and brought him another gospel. He should have said, you know what, I know you're an angel, this is cool. I would believe you because you're an angel, but guess what? The word of God said to not believe an angel who brought to me another Jesus. Same way with Muhammad in the year 600. An angel comes to him. I don't doubt that an angel came to him giving him all sorts of stuff to write down. Do not doubt it a bit. I just doubt that Muhammad took, Muhammad took the words of Jesus true when he said many false Christs. And I don't believe that he, he, he took the words of, of Paul to be true whenever he said don't take the words of even another angel if it's another gospel. See, they didn't try to resist it. We have a real enemy, folks, that's trying to deceive people. 2 Thessalonians 2.10, it says, And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now he talks about this deception that comes because people refuse to love the truth. The truth is first and foremost a person. Jesus Christ. But see, the truth is also the words that Jesus speaks. And not just the words that Jesus speaks, but the words that Jesus confirms to be His Word, which is the entirety of Scripture. And He says, these words are the truth, but people refuse to love the truth. And He said, therefore God handed them over to delusion so that they would believe the lie and so be condemned. See, Jesus says in Matthew 24 that, like I said, many false Christs and false prophets will arise so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Now, in our world today, I'd say there are many false prophets, there are many false Jesuses, but there's also, in our world today, there's many woke Jesuses. Anybody amen me this morning at all? I've had Jesuses preach to me in different ways and things that I've heard. I, 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 recently, I saw something, and I know I'm just, I'm, I'm at this point right, right now where I'm just meddling, I know. Bear with me. But I saw something very recently, like in California, for example, that the governor, Gavin Newsom, put, was putting billboards up in many different states. And on those billboards, basically, he was, he, was, he, was, he was starting a campaign to get people to come from other states to come to California so that they could have an abortion. And on the, on the billboard, he quotes Mark, I believe it was 1231, that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's my thing. You believe what you want to believe out there in the world. Believe what you want to believe. Do what you want to do. But do not use Scripture as a means to justify your sin. 
And if you are a Christian, do not... Look, even Satan knows how to use Scripture as a means to justify sin. That's what he used against, that's what he used against Jesus in the temptation. But here's what I'm saying. I got more respect for somebody who totally renounces Jesus and chooses to live the way that they're going to live than somebody who comes in the church and twists Scripture to justify sinful behavior and even so much as far as go to a murderous campaign. That is the greatest level of deception and evil in our world today when people who claim the name of Christ use Scripture to lead people into demonic behavior. And it's a mass level of deception, a wave of deception that's sweeping over the land. And I find people picking out Scriptures to try to justify their sinful behaviors and campaigns and actions. You suddenly move into this place where you're thinking, man, what are we going to do? Because it says that he could deceive even the elect if it were possible. The elect are God's chosen. You remember the elect came out of Israel, Israel or came out of Egypt. Israel was God's chosen people. But do you know that they all fell in the wilderness because of their unbelief? The language he's using here to say that if it were possible, even the elect, is to say that there's going to be some mass deception that many people are going to be led astray. And you need to pay attention because you may find yourself in a position where you say, man, I'm serving the Lord. I, I, I've seen God work through me. I've seen God use me. Man, I love the I've sensed God's presence. I know that I know the Lord. And he's saying, no, you need to pay attention. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Because you can slowly get saturated with the culture until all of a sudden you believe a lie and don't even realize how you got there. And all of a sudden you're flirting with sins that you never dreamed you'd flirt with. And you're moving in that direction. There was a man named C.S. Lewis, maybe you've heard of him. He wrote a book called The Abolition of Man. And in it, he makes this really profound uh, just statement. And what he says is, until the 1940s, throughout human history, every civilization throughout human history, until the 1940s, believed that law was something outside of themselves. That we couldn't just make it up. That it was something that we knew that we were aware of. Every civilization throughout history until the 1940s believed that law came from either the gods or God himself, one or the other. It was something that I couldn't make up. But then in the 1940s, everything switched and people sort of started moving into it. And now it's as bad as it's ever been. Lawlessness is as bad as it's ever been because now more than ever, people say, well, you know, I, I, I just kind of feel this way about it. It's the law, friend. It don't matter how you feel about it. Well, you know, I've just really been thinking about some of the things that you're saying, Clay, and I just don't know, like, if I agree with it. If it's the Scripture, you may feel terrible about it. It may not line up with your current feelings or emotions, but it is the Word of God. And see, so this is what's happening is now we have become autonomous, which literally means auto, self Nomos, law, self-law. We have become a law unto ourselves. And he says, if you want to know the spirit of the age, you want to know when it's the last hour, it's when everybody makes the laws up for themselves. They re reject God's law. They reject God's word. And they say, I know Jesus said that. I know that's in the Bible, but that's not for me. You have become a law unto yourself. You are not a Christian, no matter how much you want to put the label on yourself. Unless Jesus is your Lord and Jesus is your lawgiver, you may call yourself a Christian, but you are not a follower of Christ. You are a follower of this world, and you are a lover of self. And so many people need to hear that. As strong as that is, my goal as a pastor and as a minister is not to grow a big church. My goal as a pastor and as a minister is to make sure that the ones that God has given me knows the truth. 
Because if I slip into a place where I just allow you to live up under some level of deception, I don't care about a big church. I care about meeting Jesus and him saying, good, good, well done, good and faithful servant. You spoke the truth even when it wasn't comfortable. You spoke the truth even when it wasn't popular. You see, this is the first time in human history whenever we've had to deal with these types of things. And lawlessness is when you use Scripture to justify your sin. You know, my, my, my baby, I, I, I'm going a little bit long this morning, but it's all right. Y'all be, y'all be binging Netflix, be an eight-hour series. And y'all get mad at me over preaching for an hour. I'm serious. You will, you, you, well, I'm taking a day off, I'm going to binge Netflix. Yeah, binge a word one time. <laughs> I want somebody to come to me and be like, you know, I got a day off midweek, and uh, I think I'm just going to binge the Word of God. Nobody, how come nobody says that in the Christian church? How come everybody binging Netflix? We are under a sway, people. We're under a sway. We don't love the Word of God that much. We want it in small doses, a small dose on Sunday. A little sm- but I'll be, I'm going to do eight episodes this week of whatever it is. I don't know. Anyway, I'm go- I'm, I told you I'm, I'm, just, I'm just meddling this morning. But my baby, she's amazing. But, man, she puts everything in her mouth. You know it? This morning I saw her walking around with some kind of like a jelly wrapper in her mouth. Lord only knows where it came from. The other day she had, she had her shoe off, and it was just like dirty on the bottom of it. There was a, like a corn kernel. Stuck in the middle of it. She said, oh. <laughs> and right now, I mean, half people can't even come to church because they're all sicker than dogs. You know where it came from? Their kids licking handlebars and stuff. <laughs> I mean, you go, you go to church, you go to school right now. Andrea comes in. We stay sick about it because she goes in there with all them hoodlums down there at Hacker Elementary. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you got some go down there. And them kids is just around there spitting on stuff and picking their nose and wiping boogers and just licking stuff. I mean, that's what I got figured in my mind. Because sickness spreads when that happens, doesn't it? And I'm telling you that there are Christians in this world and churches that are sick because they put every single thing in their mouth and they swallow it and sickness spreads. Every single thing. I'm telling you, it would do you some good to turn some media off and put some nutritious food in your mouth. Put the Word of God in your mouth and in your heart and turn a few things off just to say, Lord, I don't want to be deceived in this hour. I don't want to binge filth until my mind is slowly conformed to what the world is trying to teach me is right and wrong. I don't want to adopt that behavior. I don't want to adopt that lifestyle. I don't want to sympathize with evil. I don't want to put everything in my mouth because I don't want sickness to spread like that. You got to come up with some non-negotiables in your life. And I'm finishing here. You got to come up with some non-negotiables in your life. But here's a good one. Jesus is king. He's Lord. And what he says, even if it makes me feel uncomfortable, goes for my life. Goes for my life. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, I'm going to finish here. It says, so then, brothers, stand firm. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. He's saying stand firm and hold to the traditions of Scripture because the world is not going to agree with it. You are going to have a million pulls on your life in the coming years. There's going to be pulls for, for, of lust, of money, of success, of fame, 
There's going to be pulls for so many things in your life. And what he's saying is, is if you don't have the gumption to hold to the traditions of Scripture and what the Word of God tells you, you will be led astray. You will fall up under the sway. It is likely that you will be open to deception and you need to pay attention to what's going on in your life. If we stick to Scripture, I want you to understand this. People have a possibility for repentance. I need you all to understand something about the church. We love people. We love everyone. And we, we're here to preach that Jesus loves you. He wants a relationship with you. And I know as harsh as this message sounds, Jesus truly does love you. But what Jesus calls every single person to is repentance. And if we water down the truth and if we water down Scripture and no longer hold to the traditions of Scripture, what we do is we give people an open door to say that they're a Christian without actually coming to repentance. And when we hold to the Scripture and we preach the Scripture, we actually give people an opportunity to come to a place of repentance. I promise you that you are not more merciful than Jesus. I remember somebody about a year ago having an interview with a pastor on television and they ask him a question about morality, a moral issue, a political issue and he responds by saying, well, unfortunately, I'm a follower of Jesus. And I'm saying, bro, you just said the wrong word. Unfortunately, you are a follower of Jesus. If somebody asks me, I'm not going to say unfortunately. I might say, unfortunately, the world doesn't agree with this. But this is life-giving because it comes from my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved you so much that He saw you in your deception and He saw you in your sin and He chose to die on the cross for you, but He offers you an opportunity to repent and He's more merciful than I could ever be because He loves you enough to see you in your rebellion against God and say there's still an open door. There's a chance for you to turn and lay down your sin and you think you can't do it, but I will give you my spirit and I will change your heart and I'll give you a new mind and you will find forgiveness and the greatest love you have ever known. You are empty without God. You're empty without God and the gospel and the good news is, is that you get an opportunity to actually repent of your sin and your brokenness and your shame and your pain and everything that you are and turn to Jesus and follow Him and make Him Lord of your life. I'm not more merciful than Jesus, y'all. And I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I'm not ashamed of God's Word. You give me any verse of Scripture, I'll figure out a way to preach it. I'm not ashamed of His Word. And you have to come to that position where you say that. I'm not ashamed of your word. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Lord. And there's things in my life that I've let to creep in. I've been deceived in some areas, but I'm ready to lay this down now. I want to follow you. I want you to be Lord of my life. And Lord, keep me from this deception. Let your anointing be in my life. Amen. I want you to bow your heads where you're at this morning. Hebrews 2.1 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And Lord, I pray that we do not drift away from the things that we have heard. God, don't let us drift. I want you to pray that to him. Say, Lord, don't let me drift. Don't let me drift away from the things that I've heard. Don't let me drift away from your word. Don't let me drift away from the truth because, God, culture is pulling and it's trying to form us into something that we're not. It's trying to get us to believe a different Jesus, to follow a different path. But, Lord, do not let us drift away from the things that we have heard. And Father, this morning I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict every heart and every mind to know, God, that you love them more than anything. And you died, God, to give them an opportunity to repent and believe in you. If you're here this morning 
And you say, I want to do that. I want to repent of my sin. I want to believe in Jesus. I want to make him Lord of my life. Would you just raise your hand as an act of faith this morning? Just let me see it between me, you, and the Lord. i just give you a minute here to, as an act of faith just to raise your hand and say, I want to follow Jesus. I'm ready for that. Anybody at all? I see a hand. Praise God. Anybody else? Anybody else says, I just, as an act of faith, I want to take that step. For that one that raised your hand and for the rest of us, can we just pray together over them right fast? Father, once again, we just come to a place of repentance. I want you to pray this prayer right where you're at. Lord, I come right now in repentance to you. And Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I ask you for forgiveness right now of my sins. I believe, God, that you were raised from the dead on the third day. And right now, I confess you as Lord of my life. That means that your word is what goes in my life. And so, Lord, I surrender it all to you. I ask you to fill me now with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name. Jesus' mighty name. I want you to stand to your feet. We're going to worship with this last song. I want you to take an opportunity. We've got a baptism here in just a minute. we got one baptism. But just take this moment with this next song real quick, just to respond to the Lord. You can pray around this altar. If you need prayer for anything, we'll be up here to pray with you for it. But just take a moment here to respond to the Lord and let this word get in your heart. Take a moment to pray. Thank you, Lord.